if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that when you observe that book, when you read it in its entirety and you, you look at it, and you see it from an outside view, you can boil Ecclesiastes down to humans or humanity wanting to live or trying to live autonomously. It's humanity trying to live autonomously. You say, what's that? An autonomous person has their own goals. An autonomous person has their own desires. An autonomous person is a law unto themselves. They, they go after the things that they want. They, they have their own desires, their own goals. They're a law unto themselves, and, and they, they drive towards them. And from their perspective, the autonomous person, from their perspective, there is nothing that matters except what matters to them. See, an autonomous person is one that they're a law unto themselves. They set their own standard. They live not accepting the fact that they should be subject to a higher law or that they should be subject to God the creator. That's what an autonomous person is. They, they live unto themselves. They are alone to themselves. They have their own goals, their own desires, and they do not subject themselves unto God. And all of us would say, man, that, that's That's terrible. It, can you believe people that live like that? Well, there are. There's millions of them. But if we're not careful, we're going to be quick to cast a stone at them and forget that there are many times, there are many Christians that live autonomously from God. You say, what do you mean? Their goals are not taken up with God's goals. Their desires are not taken up with God's desires. What drives them are not the things of God, but what drives them are the things of the world. They're a law unto themselves. Now, it's not that they're terrible people, but they're really a law unto themselves. And as, as long as their Christianity is, is just, just enough to be able to get me into heaven, that's all that I really need. Too many times we would look at the unsaved and we would say, Man, they're living autonomously. Can I tell you today, I believe in the church that the majority of Christians are living autonomously. They are living not subject unto God. They live their life with their own goals, their own desires. They drive towards them without even giving God a second thought. It's not that they're not Christians. But God is not a very big consideration. See, the question never enters their mind, God, what do you want? See, when you're not asking the question, when you wake up in the morning, every morning, say, God, what do you want from me today? God, what is your will today? What am I to do for you today? We're living a life that is autonomous. Because we don't even consider what God may have for us that day. 
See, the, all that really matters for many Christians today is that the only thing that really matters to them is what matters. And the only difference between the two individuals is that one is unsaved and one is saved. See, for us as believers, we are to live as if everything matters because it does. But what we find when Christians live autonomously and that they're living for their own goals and their own desires, nothing really does matter. It doesn't matter how you respond to another brother or sister in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you give or not. It doesn't matter whether you share the gospel or not. It doesn't matter whether you spend time in prayer or not. It doesn't matter whether you have your devotions or not. It doesn't matter uh, whether uh, um, uh, you pray before a meal or not. It, it doesn't matter those type of things. Why? Because, I, I mean, they're not really big, big deals. I mean, I'm a decent Christian. I show up on Sundays. Pastor, what more do you want? It's not me that wants it. I, God wants it. God wants you to live subject unto him. You say, well, why should we get up every day and ask the question, God, what do you want? Because Romans 12, 1. I beseech thee, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Listen, the last time I checked, when you put a sacrifice on an altar, it has no say in the matter. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable. It just makes sense. Reasonable service. Why? Why does it make sense for me to present my body and ask God, what do you want today? Because of the cross. That's why. Because without the cross, without the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing would matter. But because of the cross and because of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything does matter in this life. But if you were to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, you would come to the conclusion that nothing really does matter. But no, that's not what the author is saying at all. Because if you read verses 13 and 14, you find that everything really does matter. Hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So it really does matter about where you go, single individual. It really does matter about who you date. It really does matter about what you watch. It really does matter about what you listen to. It really does matter about what you, what you uh, view. It, those things, they matter. Why? Because there is a God in heaven that one day we're going to stand before. It matters. So let me ask you a question. Are you living autonomously? Do you do what you want or do you do what God wants? Is it even in consideration? See, and since everything in life matters, number one, you will not live a godless life. Since everything in life matters, you will not live a godless life. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 8, it says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. What's the, what's the definition? If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to take notes. What's the definition of a godless life? 
Have you ever thought about why evolution and its theories are so popular? If you listen to what evolutionists have to say, it is more reasonable for someone to believe that God created the world than to believe that we came from some blob. I, I want you to turn over quickly. Take a look here in, um, what is it, 1 Corinthians. See, basically evolutionists will tell us that we all came from the same flesh, right? That, you know, whether we came from a blob or we all came from monkeys or we came from an elephant or we came from whatever, okay? Whatever the latest thing is and whatever, you know. And so basically what they say is we have all come from one flesh. That there's no difference than us between us and animals, right? I mean, am I? We're just a higher form of animal life, right? Hello, anybody with me? Okay, just want to make sure that I understand evolution, which I think that I do. But that's basically, I mean, if you want to boil it down to the very basic uh, of basics, that's what it is. Well, you know, the Bible totally refutes that. You say, well, we can turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Yeah, you can, but you know, you can also turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Take a look, if you will, please, in verse 39. The Bible says all flesh is not the same flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men. Huh. Another flesh of beasts. Huh. Another flesh of fishes. And another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial body and terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. And he's using those as examples to back up what, he, what he's not only said about humanity. But have you ever thought, well, wait a second, if this is what the Bible says, and, you know, if you, and, and to be honest with you, um, those theories of evolution, and that's exactly what they are, they are theories, they are not fact. And it's not scientific. For something to be scientific, it must be observable. What they're purporting some 500 billion years ago, nobody was around to see. So how can you purport this as fact and not faith-based? Evolution is another religion. And it's a religion to replace God. See, it seems to me that it takes more faith to believe what they perpetuate as truth than what's really true. See, a definition of a godless life is to be able to remove God. So why is evolution so popular? It can't be because it's reasonable. As a matter of fact, just go back and start looking at all the evolutionary theories and how many there are and how many times it's changed. 
There's a book here made of 66 books written by God. Let me let you in on a little something. Not once has it ever changed ever since it's been written. Not once. It started out in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. So then why is it so popular if it's not reasonable? It's not fact-based. For it's fact-based, as I mentioned, it must be observable, it must be measurable. Then why do so many people hold to the religion of evolution? I personally believe it is because the desire of every human being to be autonomous from God. They want to be the ruler of their own life. I am the captain of my ship. I am in charge of my own destiny, and nobody will tell me that I am a sinner. Nobody will tell me that I am subject unto a higher being, as they would put it. I live autonomously. You say, well, Christians wouldn't say that. No, they may not say that, but it's called battling the flesh. See, man generally does not want anyone else to tell them what to do and how to live. Therefore, now listen, therefore, if there is no God, so God didn't create the world, then there's no judge. And if there is no judge, then there's no final judgment, which means that there's no accountability, and man can do that which is right in their own eyes. So guess what? We've just come up with a solution. We've got a new religion. It's a godless religion, and it's the religion of evolution. And so, therefore, it really doesn't matter how you live as long as it's okay for you. Hey, folks, listen. Why do you think that there's been so many killings in high school? There are, there are m multiple reasons, but let me tell you something. When you teach young kids from the time that they're little all the way up to the time that they're older, that all you are is just a higher form of animal life, and it's survival of the fittest, and it really does not matter, and it only matters what you want and what you desire, no, no wonder people are getting mowed down. Why is it? Because they're living a godless life. And it's a whole lot easier to be your own judge. You want to know why? Because you always let yourself off. So I don't do that. Oh, sure you do. You do, as Christians. You say, well, God, why am I going through this? I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We do it as Christians, folks. If we're not careful, we are living, though we know Christ is our personal Savior, we are living a godless life because we are not asking God, what do you want? What is your will? See, at that point when you live a godless life, life really becomes pointless. Human, human, humanity and human existence ends really in meaningless despair. When nothing really matters except for you and you being autonomous from God, it really ends up, it ends up becoming a pointless life. And Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of that life without God, it is truly meaningless. It is truly meaningless. 
And Solomon here, he comes to the conclusion, and he's a man who has his theology grounded in the first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis. And he comes to the conclusion, and he says that we live in a world that's transitory. We live in a world that is elusive. We live in a world that has fallen, and it leaves us dissatisfied. He says, really, there's a contradictory of nature, of, of, of nature's reality. It's frustrations, there's agonies, there's endless disappointments, and it alerts us to the fact, this alerts us to the fact, you say, Pastor, why is this such a warning call that all is not well between creation and creator? What does the Bible tell us in the book of Romans? That the, the creation groans. You ever groan? My wife tells me, what are all those noises coming out of you? I'm trying to get going in the morning. But it says that creation groans and life without God is absolutely meaningless and what we find is that all is not well between us and God. And it's through the book of Ecclesiastes that we are being called to humbly, listen church, we are called to humbly recognize that there is more to life than meets the eye. The way that Solomon says it, he says it this way, there's more to life than what we experience under the sun. I've said this before. Many people say that this is reality. The world that you live in is not reality. What God is doing in the world is reality. You say, how can you say that? Because the world that we live in one day is going to be destroyed. So if that's reality, then that means that all reality is going to be destroyed? Oh, wait a second. That doesn't line up. What God is doing in the world is what's real because that's the only thing that's ever going to last. I want to ask you this morning. I want you to, to, to I'm trying to bore down into your heart. And I, want to, I want you to, to think about, are you living a godless life? I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. I, I'm not saying that, it, that, that you don't even have some affections for God. But, but when is the last time that you willingly submitted yourself unto what God wants for your life, no matter what that is? Ecclesiastes the writer, he opens the book, or closes the book the same way he opens it. Take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 2. A life without God is meaningless. We're talking about that if everything in life really does matter, that you will not live a godless life. This is what a godless life looks like. In chapter 1 and verse 2, the Bible says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What this is called, for those of you who, I'll give you just a little bit of uh, the recipe and how this message was built, okay? Most of the time you shouldn't do that when preaching. But what this is, you have the same phrase in the beginning as you have at the end of the book. That's called an occluso, okay? In English, that's what it's called. It, it's, like a, it's like an envelope to, to put everything in. It's a framework. And so what what Ecclesiastes is saying, he's saying that, that everything under the sun, life under the sun, it's futile, it's empty, it's like breath, a vapor, bubbles without God. Vanity all the time, and all that there is is vanity, and we end up the same way we started. Listen, listen, folks. If you're unsaved here this morning, you don't know Christ, that's the best that you've got. 
that you're going to end up the same way you started. The problem is, that's just from the physical standpoint. The spiritual standpoint, you're going to end up worse than how you started. But for the Christian, you can live the same way. You can end up the same way that you started and, and you get to the end of your life and you look back over your life and you say, what have I done for God? It's been about my will and it hasn't been about his will. And I've, though, though I, I've been faithful at church and I've tried to do the right things, but when was the last time that I said, God, I want what you want and I'm, I'm willing to do what you want me to do and I'm willing to go where you want me to go and I'm willing to live where you want me to live and I'm willing to work where you want me to work. I'm willing to do all that you have for me. Last time I checked, he is the master and we are the servant. After all the experiments with life, Solomon, the wisest man ever to live outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, says that a godless life is totally empty and void of any meaning. But secondly, not only is there the definition of a godless life, we see here a description of a godless life. A description of a godless life. What does godless life look like? One of the things that we've already determined is that the first step in a godless life is to live autonomously from God. Okay, but, but pastor, that, that's fine, but now give me something concrete. What does that look like? I don't know about you. It's one thing for, me to, for somebody to tell me, okay, you're, you're living apart from God. You're, you're, not, you're not being subject unto God. You're not asking the question, God, what do you want? Okay, but how does that work out in practical life? What does that look like for me? Well, not only are you not pursuing, you're pursuing your own goals, you're living your own life with little regard to what God wants. But what happens is you, you'll never find out what God wants for your life. I want you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 30, if you will. Because we see a description of a godless life. What it looks like. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Verse 11 says, There is a generation that curseth their father and doth, doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, now how, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. Here, the, the, the proverb here, it gives us a description of a godless life. Here, let me give you, and you might want to write these down, just what does a godless life look like? And many times we, we think that <clears throat> a godless life is... is uh, Something where we're involved in gross sin. Now, the big sins, you know what I'm talking about, right? We have our categories, but, but God doesn't have a category. He just calls it sin. Now, God has different consequences for sin, but the category for, for sin is just sin. That's right. So whether you 
lie to your mom or you murder somebody, God sees that as sin. Now, there's different consequences. If you lie to your mom, you might get a time out or you might get your mouth washed out with soap. <gasps> God forbid, not in the 21st century. So that might be the consequences. But if you murder somebody, you could end up in jail for the rest of your life. You could end up with uh, the death penalty, death sentence. You know, there's different consequences. But so many times when we think of a godless life, we think of, oh, well, that's the godless life, the murderer out there, you know. But I think that I've established pretty well this morning that you can be coming to Open Bible Baptist Church and I can be the pastor of Open Bible Baptist Church, and all of us here can be living a godless life. I think I've established that. So then what does a godless life look like? Verse 11, there's a generation that cursed their father and doth not bless their mother. It's a graceless and unthankful person who dishonors their authority. It's a graceless or unthankful person. You say, well, I don't dishonor my parents, but okay, well, we can, and I don't dishonor my, my authority. Okay, well, then let's take that out. But are you graceless? Uh, how about this? Are you unthankful? One of the things, I, I, I'm going to just open up to you a little bit here. One of the things that irks me more than anything is that when people live like this. Like you owe it to me. Now, I, I, I got to deal with that because that's flesh, okay? I have to deal with that. And I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't help people. I, I preached on the poor last week, okay? And that we're to help them. But when it's almost expected... You know what I'm talking about? When, it, when it's expected. And it says that they disregard a really just an unthankful heart. Not only that, but there's a generation. You say, well, what generation is it talking about? I'm glad that it says that there is a generation because you know what? This applies to every generation. You know, we want to get on the millennial generation or, or the X generation or the baby boomer generation. How about every generation, if we're not careful, we can be a godless generation. One of the greatest promises, and let me talk to you just for a second, young people. One of the greatest promises in the whole Bible is to young people and the single adults and the college-age students. And one of the greatest promises in the Bible is disregarded because they dishonor their parents. The Bible tells me, and it tells all of us, that if we honor our parents, it will go well with us. It doesn't mean that you have to agree, young person. It doesn't even mean that you have to like. But you do have to honor. You say, well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, preacher. Get those singles. Get, get those millennials. Well, how about you? Are you... You have a thankful heart? Uh, how about you? When was the last time when something happened wrong to you? Were you gracious in it? Or were you graceless in it? Amen. 
Let me tell you, a generation that cannot learn from their parents will result in the destruction of that society. And the Bible says here that this graceless person, this unthankful person, or this person that dishonors their parents is an example of a godless life. Romans 1.21, you might want to write this down if you would, please. Romans 1.21, the Bible says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. But became unthankful. Wow. And their foolish heart was darkened. Not only that do I see uh, that that's one of the descriptions of a godless life, but I see that, secondly, they're pure in their own eyes. They're pure in their own eyes. It says in th that there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes. They are blind to the truth. They don't, they're, they're blind to sin. Say, well, I, I'm not that bad. I, I, I'm a decent Christian. You know, I don't do the drugs, the alcohol. I don't run around. They're really deaf to what God has to say. Just because, listen folks, listen now, just because you may decide to redefine sin, just because you may decide to redefine sin in your own mind does not mean that you're not guilty before God. Can I, can, can I get some help this morning? But that's the truth. How many of us have redefined sin in our own minds? I understand, look, I told you Ecclesiastes wasn't going to be an easy book to get through. And I understand I'm plowing hard. But the truth of the matter is that God does not redefine sin according to society. God has defined sin very clearly in his word. And it doesn't matter whether you think that that applies to you or not. It does. It applies to all of us. Far be it from me to stand up here and say it applies to you. But guess what? It applies to me as well. See, they're pure in their own eyes. They miss the fact because they're living unto themselves. They're living in sin. They can't see it. Not only that, but they're arrogant. They're arrogant. They see themselves as awesome, wonderful. I don't know about you, I do like that show, and I, I'm very, I'm very uh, careful because we've got curse-free TV, and so that'll block it out. I'm very careful. I'm not saying I endorse the show, but I do like that show, Shark Tank. You ever see that show? Mr. Wonderful. That's what I was just thinking when I said, they, they're awesome, they're wonderful, Mr. Wonderful. Somebody said, you remind me of Mr. Wonderful. I'm like, thanks a lot. You know, I think, I think hopefully it's just a bald head, you know. Man, if I had his money, we'd have that parking lot done. You want to make a deal? They're, they're, they're arrogant. Turn over to Psalm 119, if you will, please. Hey, and guess what? Arrogance in the Bible, it's a sin against God. An arrogant heart ultimately disregards God. Psalm 119, verse 21. 
Man, this is a strong verse right here. Whew. I'm going to have to, next couple, I'm going to have to figure out, I've got to preach on love for the next couple weeks because I'm telling you what, man, this has been rough. Psalm 119, verse 21. If you're a guest, come back. Please come back. All right? <laughs> I don't preach against all sin all the time. You know, we do love Jesus and we love people. But we're trying to get some things straightened out here. Psalm 119, verse 21. Look at this verse. My soul, thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Thou hast rebuked the proud. It's one thing to just say, to, to rebuke somebody. But God goes on to say, not on, the psalmist goes on to say about God, he said, he's not only rebuking the proud, but I want to let you know about the arrogant, about the proud, about that type of person. They're not only rebuked by God, they're cursed. You say, I'm not living an arrogant life. When was the last time you said, God, what do you want? What is your will? We don't live that way. Guess what? We're living unto ourselves. I mean, what if God told you to sell your brand new car and get an old car and give the proceeds to the church? <gasps> I'm not saying that he would do that, okay? But, you know, I do know people in the past here, see, since I grew up here, I, I do know people in the past here that... That at one time, God laid on their heart, uh, a lady, laid, uh, God was speaking to a lady, and, and, and she took off her wedding ring, and she placed it in the offering plate. I'm not, I'm not looking for any diamond rings or anything, because there's going to be some husbands that are really mad at me. But you understand what I'm saying. You say, man, that, that, that's, that, that's, that's absurd. Why would any woman do that? I mean, that's what her husband gave. What if God asked you to do that? Oh, let's just, let's just stop. That, 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 that's kind of like out there. How about this, parents? What if God has asked your kid to go to a foreign field? Oh, I mean, I got to have my babies around me. I mean, come on. I mean, can't they witness here? Yeah, but what if God's asked them? What if God's asked you to change a job so that, that way you have more time to be able to witness to other people so that that way you're not working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, that you have a normal week so that that way you can go and maybe help widows, you can go and be able to serve the poor, you can go and share the gospel. What if God just asked you to do that? I mean, just, just, you mean God might ask, I mean, he's asked some people to do some pretty unique things in his word, hasn't he? <laughs> I mean, sometimes don't we think that we're almost exempt from these kind of things? I mean, we're... Pastor, where are you getting off? This is the 21st century. What are you talking about? Man, have you lost your mind? What? Come on, get, get real. Live in the real world. <laughs> Remember, the real world is what God's doing. What does a godless life look like? Number four, or you can just write this down, a bullet point. They have mouths that are out of control. They got mouths that are out of control. Their teeth are like swords, it says, and their jaw teeth like knives. They have no place for the poor or the needy in their life. They only see the poor or they only see other people as some, as, as to be able to use or exploit for their own benefit. 
There's no civility built into their life. See, this is the description of those who live a godless life. You might say, well, hey, pastor, I'm all right. I don't, I don't have all those qualities. I didn't say when I began this you had to have all of them. You might. But if you just have one, you've offended in all points. See, living a godless life will not get you to see that everything matters. Let me ask you, and I know this has been a hard message. I don't apologize for it. It's the word of God. And I'm not going to apologize for it. I tried to preach it in truth and in love. I really did. I think you know my heart by now. Okay? But I'm not going to apologize for the word of God. Now, folks, we might need to do some business. Might be time that we say, okay, Lord. You know what? I really haven't been considering. It's not that you're off in some gross wickedness. It's, it's not that you're, 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 you're out there trying to just live a life of debauchery. But Lord, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't really taken time to consider what you want. Lord, would you forgive me of that? The wonderful thing is that he will. Lord, I'm so sorry. I, I, I want to live a God-filled life. I, I don't want to live a godless life because I understand in the end it's all going to be meaningless and only what I do for you is going to matter. Lord, would you help me today? You say, Pastor, what's the take home? I would ask that that would be your prayer throughout this week. That become your prayer. Lord, help me to be willing to submit to you. Folks, that's not easy because we battle the flesh. But how many of us here Though we may know Christ as our personal Savior, are living a godless life. And if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, you are living a godless life. The only way to live a God-filled life is to know Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty. He rose again three days later according to the Scriptures. That's the only way to start on the journey of living a God-filled life. We'd like to be able to share Jesus Christ with you. In just a moment, you're going to have that opportunity. But you know, I really spoke to Christians this morning. It was, it was a time where we just sat down as a family and said, okay, just have the rubber meet the road today. We need to make sure that we're really serious about this thing. We need to make sure that we're not playing church. We need to make sure that we really are wanting what God wants for our life. Are you living a godless life?